Well, let's uh, thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for these five evenings, grateful for time given that these people have uh, stopped to consider and, and give up at this time. To look at your word, to look at uh, ideas that affect their lives um, in terms of marriage, and we'd ask that you would uh, close out the week with uh, a blessing. In your son's name, amen. Okay, revering authority, wives. And if anyone needed a water, now a whole case of water is available. Um, now, you probably got the idea already. You've all been pretty faithful in attendance. Uh, you've probably gotten the idea that Evan and Leslie completely accept the biblical outlook about hierarchies in marriage. And uh, I want to, some of the passages we haven't read, I've sort of stacked up a few here on the side. Titus, which is about teaching, it's about old women teaching younger women. Then it says in verse 4, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, be sensible, chaste, domestic, kind, and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be discredited. Genesis 18, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? Psalm 45, which is a wedding or a marriage psalm. Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will sue you your favor with gifts, the richest of the people with all kinds of wealth. And then out of 1 Samuel 25, the words of Abigail after David proposed to her. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Now, obviously you know that this whole thing is in the authority issue. We're trying to convince the husbands that their lordship had better be a noble lordship. Their lordship had better be as the Lord had commanded, that they were under authority like the Roman centurion, and uh, they had better pony up with these general expectations and more to provide to themselves a wife like Christ was providing the church to himself. And it might be like flogging a dead horse to go back and look at Ephesians 5. I don't know if you look through this, this night's lecture, but Ephesians 5 is not, eh, no, it's not there. Now, is it because I have suddenly got apostate and I am... Uh, going to deny everything I said heretofore? Well, no, because you saw what I just said out of those passages. I want you to think about this differently than we had the guys think about it. Thinking about it differently and approaching it differently because, just like you husbands need to learn, you approach women differently than you approach men. And in the teaching of women, perhaps, we're, we roll the dice here and said, well, you know, maybe we'll do this differently than we did, where we won't sit there necessarily and break down the commands and the whys and wherefores of the commands. That's, that can be done, uh, if you'd like that. Um, but I, I, I think that, that women in this day and age need to have some inspiration. And if I just started pounding 
you know, said, well, I pounded on the guys last night, so I'm going to pound on you tonight. Well, the, you might leave you frustrated and anxious and depressed and, and rather than rejoicing. Um, I think it's better to, to try to go at this like we did with some of the other things where we touch on the ideas so that you are intrigued, blessed, desiring the idea that's being set before you rather than being told as a modern woman, no, you got to act like you're from the Middle Ages, you know, or antiquity. And that's how you got to walk around. And if you could get a little Hutterite cap, that would be great. We talked about veils last night with, uh, so uh, veiling the women, burkas for everybody at all souls. Um, we want to we want to stress this or work our way through it in such a way that your heart would be thrilled with how good and how um, how beautiful it will make you. That's sort of playing off of your natural lusts. Um, Especially the beauty. The part. beauty part. Um, we know that the Bible is replete uh, with all these instructions about the order of the family. And sometimes you might wonder why you get married at all, you know. Um, and we, if we think about it for a bit, and we go back and look at that Genesis 3.16 passage when it says to Eve, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And I mentioned before that that generally results in pregnancy, which is not a Thank you, sir. May I have another uh, type of pain? Uh, women, you know, yarn for babies. They like babies. Uh, but it hurts like the dickens from what I hear. I watched four of them come out of the chute, and uh, the chute wasn't happy. Uh, if I may be frank. Um, and and uh, now it's not that you don't take credit for that, because... You get it together with any women, and pretty soon it's how long was your labor stories, and did you have an episiotomy, and did you take drugs, and did you scream, and did you throttle your husband midway through your breathing? Um, women like those battle stories. <laughs> um, but there is a, there's something going on that is sort of hidden in the middle of that First Peter 3 passage. Um, that we haven't talked about yet. It talked about reverence and, and uh, chastity. It talked about a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, talked about husbands being considerate with their wives. Uh, wives calling their husbands Lord and letting nothing terrify them. Um, but what's hidden in the middle is this phrase. Back, you look up back at the top of the column. Let not yours be the outward adorning with braiding of hair, decoration of gold, and wearing of fine clothing, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit. We talked about the gentle and quiet, but we didn't talk about the motivation of adornment. There's a motivation natural to women since the beginning of time to adorn themselves. And Peter, along with Timothy, uh, with Paul, uh, are, are not banning being adorned or even spending any time in front of the mirror. Uh, he's saying, oh, that's not where your head should be at. Uh, you're not trying to win this man, keep this man, 
by having implants or collagen lips uh, or some spray on whatever they spray on these days. Um, we're not trying to uh, you know, just act as if they're animals in heat, but that you're making yourself beautiful nonetheless. And the motivation to be beautiful is um, uh, your point of leverage. Your beauty, where, who you become, is your point of leverage with even a non-Christian. This passage is about a non-Christian husband. Maybe one without a word when they see the behavior of their wives. Now, this adornment of their mind is in these things mentioned. The general quiet spirit, the reverence and chastity. But think of it, I want you to begin to think about it this evening in terms of, this is about your beauty. And I, I'm not merely saying women who are good are more beautiful and I'm tricking you into being good because you're vain and you want, well, I want to be beautiful, so I'll be good. Uh, no, it's a different, sort of, a different sort of thrust I want you to think of it as. Um, we're going to get to this in a little bit, a little bit but uh, there is a... Uh, I want you to think that sometimes the things that are your natural um, enjoyments and urges aren't thereby bad. Okay? Just like men like the competition and sports, there's a good way and a bad way to go about it. There's a good way and a bad way to compete. There's a good way and a bad way to fight wars. Is a good way and a bad way to do all the kind of guy things that we want to do. Because it's a guy thing, sometimes you have to realize that God has a use for the urge a woman has to be beautiful. He knows, Peter knows, that when he says, adorn yourself, he's just dragging her away from the, you might say, the vanity of outside looks. And I don't say vanity in a negative way, but just that, look, you're getting older you're going to be dead soon, and then you won't be very attractive. Um, that, you're, you're, that he's saying, hey, have you thought that maybe you could think of adorning yourself uh, this way? Not forget about adornment. Not forget about uh, how you appear. Um, now, I want you to uh, consider that throughout the Bible... There is all this Old Testament talk about, you know, we got the Psalms, we got Esther, we've got the Song of Solomon, we've got all sorts of uh, 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 Abigail and her comments, and then you have it echoed very consistently in the New Testament. God did through Paul and the other apostles structuring uh, this common thread uh, that we've uh, that we've recognized, and that common thread has to do with the jeopardy that women feel themselves to be in, and how God has provided for that in the structure of a marriage. Now, in case, before you fill this out, you are tempted to say, well, I think he was a little down on, you know, we, you know that, that women were weak, or women were, you know, in jeopardy. And I use the word jeopardy, you know, advisedly, because I, it doesn't sound like it's a complaint about someone. To be, in, to be jeopardized is not necessarily some fault in you, it's a state in you. 
And we don't want you to think of it as saying, well, weak is somehow, well, guys think of it as bad because, oh, you're weak. Ah. You know, I, I, it's like a guy speaking French. Uh, who, who could stand that? Women speaking French, on the other hand, looks, sounds great. <laughs> guys speaking French, not so much. <laughs> but I don't want you to think that I'm just a, a, some woman hater or just looking down on. And I want you to uh, separate yourself from the evening and think about what women go after. I may have mentioned this uh, the other day about women's fiction, at least about the pirates. Remember the pirates? Um, what are women's books like? I mean, they're... Romance novels. Ro romance novels. You know, the bodice busters or the harlequins or the... Everything from Jane Austen forward. What good, poorly written, whatever they are, they are, they are uh, filled with this. You can tell the hero within minutes of him entering a page. You're reading along, you might meet all sorts of men in the book already, but as soon as the hero shows up, you know who he is. And then you're rooting, you're rooting for him. I hope he gets the girl by the end of the book. He does, okay? It works out. <laughs> But these are books written by women, for women, selling by the gazillion. And it doesn't matter how badly they're written. Sometimes they sound like they're written by a computer. And they probably are written by a computer. Names change, what nation the, the, the taciturn doctor in the, in the outback is, or the cold duke with aquiline features, whatever, uh, whatever it is. Um, I might not be able to say this is the case baldly and have you accept it, but if you sat back and rested in your sex, not in sex, but in your, in your condition as a woman, and looked at the, what you got, women are up to when you're given free range to the capitalist endeavor, used bookstores the nation over are filled with the secondhand copies of those books that richer women could afford firsthand because they'll get sold again and again and again. And, um, and then you find ones written in the, you know, say 1800s or something, and there's another, you know, like wildfire going through the women's community. They're handing it back and forth like drugs. <laughs> One time, my mother gave a book called The White Ladies of Worcester to my wife. And it was written probably in the early part of this last century. And at one point, Leslie was reading along and was so moved, she was falling out of her chair, literally falling out of her chair. I don't know from sleep or... It was about nuns. It was about nuns and, and, and Did knights. Did you read that book? Yeah. Nuns and, and knights. It's pretty nuns. You know, guys, nuns. Um, yowza. Now, we know there are exceptions. Women do just fine without men sometimes. My... I'm sure I've known, I, I knew Corey Ten Boom, she did just fine without men. Uh, what other, sensei, my mother's uh, teacher in Japan, uh, various other women Amy who, Carmichael. Amy Carmichael, uh, some great women of God who have taken the kingdom before marriage, and, uh, but fine without, St. Paul was a single guy without any, any, he gave it up because it was a better choice. So it's not a matter of everyone needs this or everyone thinks this way. It's a, it's a general stereotype based on the way uh, 
nature that God has made has produced women at a certain state of jeopardy, and so they like things that feature that jeopardy threatened, and generally them misunderstanding, them getting it wrong, and the guy coming out sterling in the end. Because when at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, every woman with Elizabeth hates Darcy, and then about three quarters of the way through, they're wondering what's wrong with Elizabeth, because Darcy is a god. <laughs> and why can't there be more men like Mr. Darcy? He has never been wrong. Is she so messed up? And then you're clapping your pudgy hands together at the end because they get together. So the, the, I just want to let you know, this is just the deal with the facts. You may be a little bit different yourself, but deal with the reality in the world and that the scriptures address us where we really are. As an example, this Timothy 2 passage Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet woman will be saved through the bearing of children if she continues in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Now, you're probably already going, what? Women get saved? I thought we got saved by faith, not by nine months of uncomfortable weight gain and, and a lot of pain saved by the bearing of children. My, my dear wife was pointing it out to me at one point. I was because I was sort of, what? what? Some people say it's the birth of Christ. By the birth of the child, some people translate it. Rather than, every, ooh, Jesus, you mean that? No, it's probably talking about, since it's talking about women being deceived, the presence of a woman in the domestic situation with her life intact in faith, love, and holiness with modesty, raising children, she's protected against deception, which is what the topic is on. She is saved from that. My wife came up with that. Thank her later. Um, but that's just an example of how, generally speaking, not all women are, some people are, some women are sharp cookies and can see through a scam artist very easily. Um, but recognize what is going on in the world and how God has provided for us and that a lot of your interest in marriage is for that provision to whatever extent you need it and desire it picking the man that provided it for you and the uh, the idea is when you're married whatever degree you stepped into the marriage regarding that it has subtracted from your claim to craft your own life. Um, you're not getting married so that you would have a, a, a paid-for position that you could craft your utopia about what you've decided you want to do with yourself. You've become this man's wife. Husbands were not made to accompany their wife through life. A wife is made for her husband. You joined his life, he did not join yours. Just like, symbolically, you took his name. Now, I don't think there's anything immoral about someone having a hyphenated last name. But it's the spirit of the age. It is, I'm not joining you as much, as, mu as you're joining me just as much. Except you really only gets to be the last one of the two. Um, Leslie Rye Wilson, hyphen. Uh, it's not immoral. It's not like, oh, God said something against hyphenated names. But what are you, what are you saying? What are you claiming? I'm still I, my own. Yes, I'm still my own. Yeah. I'm, I'm still crafting what I want to get out of life. And um, 
Things like it, some women are offended by the idea of being given away by their fathers in the wedding. Given away. Given away? They have property, cattle, two cows and a wife. <laughs> you have to realize that your joys, your loves, both your Christian love for your spouse and your erotic love for your spouse, rest in this matter. Um, it's good for a woman to realize that you know, we men like to think of ourselves as practical, and I mentioned this the other night about the mojo, that men are not practical, they're magical beings, we are magical beings, um, magical beings in regard to our love, we, are, we have something hardwired into us because of God's creation of Eve, and the way he did so, and we are driven by it. Women are much more practical, much more pragmatic. They assess the circumstance. I need somebody else to pay my bills. I'll just raise the skirt a little shorter. And look, I got a husband. That's how it works. I'll be pretty, a little slather on, a little bit more makeup, a little lowered eyelids at the Christian Bible study. Get his attention across the way. And all of a sudden, he's paying your bills. It's amazing. Now, that's pretty practical. It's evil, but it's practical. Now, but when you look at that, when you realize now, how could you say that about us uh, and get out of here alive? But when you when you recognize this, you start to recognize what's behind that. What's what is what's going on? What am I doing? I'm making a practical adjustment in my life to resolve a jeopardy I feel in the areas of insecurity that I feel spiritually, financially, whatever else. It is natural to do. And that's why when you love a man, falling in love with, it, you can only speak of it in honorifics. You know, the, your your um, description of him to your girlfriends is, is all the great things he is. And it may be that it's uh, just a, such a close fellow traveler, it may just be synonymous that your private honor, that's what I would think of love as, uh, uh, romantic love for women, the private honor your jeopardy felt by his presence, since you can only speak to it in honorifics, it may be merely honor. That's a great thing, though, but when you realize my honor to a man, because honor is, is something that recognizes a dignity, just like when it says honor the woman is the weaker vessel, a husband is taking her where she is and giving honor to that thing that she is, recognizing her dignity, her place, and, and ennobling her and speaking to the, the greatness that she is. Now, when you're thinking of your love for your husband or your future husband, you're, and you realize that it is honor, not some sort of you know, tenuous thing that's only heard of in, in uh, Shakespeare plays, um, it may be that if you start to dishonor him by a belief in the spirit of the age, by seizing your own, making your own plans for your life, not giving yourself fully to him, the love slips. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. The, uh, the woman gets to be this vassal of, her, of this lord, the first to call him Lord, or his first citizen of his fief. Uh, children come later. And uh, you have a standing, a pretty great standing, which 
is natural when I have an, honor, an honorific love and I have an honoring hierarchy where one agent is doing things directly for this other agent and this other agent's love, the wife's love, is based on her recognition of that good and benefit and power he has brought into her life. Um, there are ways to destroy it. You've heard of nagging. That's a good way. Uh, I have another one down here. The unsecured wife who has a series of private fears that no man can resolve. And as she dwells in her private fears, do you have anything, you've noticed various friends that have struggled with fears? Yeah, the, the fears are in the realm of uh, we need insurance to make sure all our medical bills from now until we die will be cared for. Um, oh my gosh, we're not going to be able to make the house payment. Oh, what if something happens to the car? Oh, we can't have the kids climb in the tree. They might fall out of the tree and crack their heads open. And, I mean, they're just all over the place. Fears are. Um, and it just takes one kid cracking his head open. One time in human history. In human history. And then it enters legend. Yeah. And every woman thinks it was the kid down the street. Now, I always tell people I'd rather have my kid in a wheelchair than climbing a tree. Not climbing a tree. I mean, it's, it's, I mean what an awful thing. But that's a guy response. Um, I feel like it. Oh, then not sick. climbing a tree. Then not climbing a tree, yeah. I, when I was looking at these, Evan, just now, I realized that the nagging wife, the unsecured wife, and the usurping wife can all be easily rolled into one. I think that any of the wives here who've been married long at all can recognize that all of those would be so easy to be. Not that any of you ever have. <laughs> I wouldn't want to suggest that any of you ever, feeling insecure in the situation, irrationally insecure, disobeying the Lord Jesus Christ when he told you not to worry about tomorrow, said, no, I would like to run this universe myself, please. I am going to worry about tomorrow, and then I'm going to look at everything my husband didn't do in the yard, Stephanie, and, and uh, I'm going to ride him about it. And if I realize he has this great power of passive resistance, and we do, to just do it such a slow way that he's not going to resolve my fears. He's not going to secure me like this. One, you're, you, you've defined where you think he should honor, be honorable. You accuse him of not being honorable. Then you usurp his authority and take away his honor entirely. You become the guiding force, the driver in the family. You become the decider of things. He will not be, one, by dishonoring chaos, but by peace and honor. Not only will he not be one, you won't be getting a married marriage. Remember, their desire is that the chief end of the, of the leadership of a husband is to promote erotic marrying. That we are two people of opposite sexes, erotically joined and maintaining that at a state of growing, spiritual, holy, wise, hotness. That's a Bible word. That's what you're supposed to do. And you enter these other things. If you say, I'm going to give up my access to love and uh, by giving up my access by taking uh, of these 
misbehaviors, not knowing they're chopping down the tree of love. It can't stand with a nagging wife. It can't stand with an insecure wife. It can't stand with a usurping wife. Now, I was, uh, many years ago, I don't know how many, Leslie can maybe remember how many years ago, um, I had a woman, 20-ish, 20-ish years ago, a, a woman pastor come to visit me in the library. She was on a mission. She had visited my father and my older brother and me. She was from Pullman. She was an evangelical, but a woman pastor. Nice girl. Co-pastor. Co-pastor with her husband. And uh, she had heard from various people who had heard me in a Bible study um, all sorts of awful things about my views regarding women. I trust they're pretty much the same as I held down. You go, yeah, they awful. We had a good chat. She wanted to talk to me, get it straight from that. I thought it was very admirable of her to come over and talk to me. I thought it was... Uh, um, she was having a real struggle with these rumors and wanted to get it straight from the horse's mouth, so she did. And um, we had a good conversation, and I asked her about the First Peter three passage. I said, "What do you, what do you do with this? Well, I mean, here you're a pastor, you teach, and here's a passage of scripture. It says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do likewise, and let nothing terrify you.' How would you take that to the people who would come to you for being taught the word?" And she said, well, I think the term Lord is archaic. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm cool. You know, I realize that. If I asked my wife to call me Lord, she might do it, but it would be a laugh riot right afterwards. I mean, it would be, um, yes, my Lord, and start. Uh, I said, I understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so um, tell me then, which not archaic term of respect do you use for your husband? I mean, there's probably words in the English language that haven't dropped off the map into the first edition of the Oxford English, you know, where, where nobody uses it anymore for something like that. But there are terms that do still exist. Do you use one of those? No, she didn't. She didn't have a problem because it was archaic. She had a problem because it was telling her something she did not either believe or want to do, which would have been better to tell me. He could have just said, I don't believe it. People don't like to say that about the Bible. They like to say we don't understand, or it's a different culture, or something else. It's, it's got to be left intact, so I, but still allowing me to disobey it. You could be your own person, women, if you remain single. If you get married, you took on another Adonai. You took on another Lord. Now, Naturally, in a good situation, a woman is desiring walls of protection to rise up around her, not to hem her in, but to keep things out. To take whatever mundane things husbands can do and move the refrigerator when it needs to be, change the tire, um, grunt appropriately after a good meal. We, we fill in a lot of these mundane things. But... And you know, men, that she's, you're, you're on the right track when she seems to be encouraging you to protect her, yea, verily, even more. Slight warning on that. Uh, too many women think all security should come from their husband. <laughs> the husband, God does not exist in their mind. 
My husband should make sure nothing bad happens. Anything bad happens, even if it had nothing to do with the husband, the husband failed to protect them. Kind of like the people view the nanny state of the democratic idea right now, where if anything bad happens, somebody's to blame and you got to make sure that it never happens again. Or they get sued. Or they get sued. You get your husband is not capable of producing all the security. He produces some. He has got a task. You remember what the primary directive of a husband is. He is supposed to make a peace in your life where your erotic marrying can exist. All right? Now, I mentioned at the beginning the passage out of Titus is about the word of God being discredited. Um, not because Christianity rests on servile and beaten down women, that that's how we've got to make sure that our women are servile and beaten down. Um, that's not what we're trying to achieve. It rests on the peace that we get from obeying the Lord, not a certain kind of crushed um, uh, gender culture. As Lewis said, we quoted this last night, this passage out of Preface to Paradise Lost, disease and monstrosity are what happens when people don't recognize place, dignity. And it will correct you. Reality will correct you. And the, uh, the state of what I've been calling soft divorce, if you don't have erotic marrying going on and growing, you have distance established, separation occurring, and soft divorce being lived. And until the peccant being is either corrected or destroyed. You've made the very nature of things your enemy. You can't succeed. Now I wanted to quote a few, a few passages here. This First Timothy 6 is not about wives at all. It's about slaves. Well, some of the women are going, yeah, that's what you think we are. I don't. I don't. All you have to do is be around me you know, trotting around after my wife in the kitchen, being her right-hand, you know, sous chef, chef or boy, kitchen Filipino boy that I, never pool boy, but just, you know, holding the utensils, doing what I'm told to do next because I, I'm out of my depth and she knows what she's doing. And she knows what has to be accomplished. So you know that, that uh, Leslie and I don't live that way, but there is a degree of... Uh, uh, that understanding this word of God being discredited, how important it is to God that you view the cosmos this way. Not view marriage alone this way, view all things this way. I, I made disparaging remarks about John Locke. I would, I would hope that you would burn him in effigy in your yard in the coming weeks, or um, somehow take the founding fathers of the United States to the cleaners. But we don't, uh, we don't understand the world as God made it. We understand how godless people remade it in the 1700s. Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be defamed. Just like with a wife submitting to her husband, the word of God may not be discredited, somehow these relationships of authority are supposed to when lived, when lived contentedly and joyfully, are a protection to your, to the kingdom of heaven being represented well in the world. 
It says, and, and, and let this be a little lesson. And those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brethren. Now listen to this. Because sometimes you send a wife off to work, say she's working in a corporate world, and, and uh, no, no kids, and, and it's not anything like that, but she's got a job, and, and uh, she understands the chain of command at her job, and she is uh, moving, shaking, doing stuff when the boss says that she's the best worker on the floor, and she gets everything done, and, and uh, because, well, she, I want to be a good testimony, right? I want to be a good testimony as work goes home to her Christian husband, says fry it yourself. You know, the egg. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. So if you have someone who is closer to you, how would you behave in a situation where you knew the non-Christian world was looking at you? Well, you'd be much more aware of discrediting the gospel by how you behave. You wouldn't lose your temper, you wouldn't even get mad at you wouldn't nag, you wouldn't, you know, whatever you wouldn't do. And you go home to your believing husband and you give him a worse life than your unbelieving boss. Well, it says here, because they're believers and beloved, all the more for them. Then he says, teach and urge these duties. If listen to the description of people who reject it. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching which accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, he knows nothing, he has a morbid craving for controversy, and for disputes about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, and wrangling among men who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And that's right after telling slaves that they need to work hard for their masters to honor the Lord, and even more for their believing masters. Don't teach otherwise. Titus 3, here I under, under it. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for any honest work. I won't read the rest of that text because it, it's beautiful about what the Christian life is like, and it's, it's all tied in with how we as citizens of various kingdoms function. You are a citizen of the United States of America. <coughs> You're a you're a citizen of Moscow, you're an employee of X company, and you're married to so-and-so. You're the children of this, these people. You're under various governments, and all authorities have been instituted by God. What's your, what is your testimony regarding that? Because we're out here living in reverence for Christ, and how we live comes back to measure how we have reverenced Christ. It says here in Colossians 3, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's sort of like, that's a little different than the word of God not being discredited. Um, as is fitting. It's what the people who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. We know that people who are naturally revereers ought to have reverence. Not just when Jesus comes and forgives your sins, so you got to go to a praise service and sing praise songs to worship Jesus because he forgave your sins. It says immediate transaction. Okay, you were nice to me. I'll sing nice songs to you. But Lord help me if I ever think I should revere anyone in any way. 
No, you're not a reverence or you're not religious. You're not, you're not, you don't have a religion that's worth uh, the paper it's printed on. So you need to be, um, as Leslie pointed out to me later in the passage here, verse 23, whatever your task, work heartily as serving the Lord and not men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, those are all I'm right here at this point in the, in the in the lecture. I'm trying to convey to you that this is the world that Christianity and Christ defines, and this is what all of us slaves, masters, citizens, kings. Husbands, wives, we have been called to this worldview. We've been called to this worldview, and it's, a, it's an opportunity, not in some, only some mystery, to represent Christ in the church between you, but to represent the gospel and the kingdom broadly in the world, that the credit of the gospel is in who you are, and if you're a modern egalitarian, it isn't going to be there. You're going to be constantly seizing your own as a, as, a, as a handy thing, I just shoved it in here as a short paragraph before we get on um, to the big things. One of the great ways to see what you think about authority is how hypocritical you are. Oh, thank you, Evan. Um, Whatever system, if you're a principled person, your rejection, let's say you're a principled, you think you're a principled person, and you're going to reject these passages to whatever degree or, or handle them. You say, okay, I've got to figure out what my principle is regarding them so that I know why I don't have to do that or think that way. If I don't have to do that, there's a reason I don't have to do that. Not just merely, I'm the princess. And the princesses don't, princesses? princesses don't have to do that sort of thing if we don't want to. Is that the reason? Then you say, well, it's got to be something better than that. Whatever the principle of your rejection is, I want you to immediately apply it to the other people mentioned. What husbands have to do, what children have to do. Husbands, it says in verse 19 of Colossians 3, love your wives. Oh, so if you don't have to be subject to your husbands, whatever the principle is, You've got to grant that to the other people under an injunction, right? Husbands don't have to love their wives if you don't have to be subject to your husbands. And children obey your parents in, in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children do not have to obey. You've given, you've written everybody some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card if you write yourself one. And so when your children, who should be rising up and calling you blessed, um, are being some little Walmart kid throwing a fit in the toy aisle, and you're trying to count to ten, or you're trying to get them to behave, or you're trying to, and you're getting more and more frustrated, and you hit your head and say, oh, that's right. I decided I didn't have to be subject to my husband. My kid doesn't have to obey me. It's, it's, if the Lord tells it, you can't hold everybody else to account, but actually, what you're doing when you are like this is you are really trying to spot how you could have just you in the universe and no one else, just you, can have the world the way you want it. And that means that nobody else gets out of the get-out-of-jail-free cards on the verses. Everybody else gets held to account. All husbands have to love you. 
all children have to obey you, and I'll decide in which moments I have to be subject to my husband. <coughs> Recognize that for what it is. It's, you know, raw hypocrisy. And I mentioned last night with making lists of how you're going to do it, not circumstances where you wouldn't have to. Okay? Because just like with the kids and the husbands, are you making lists where your husband doesn't have to love you? Making lists for your, when your children don't have to obey you? Oh yeah, my kids wouldn't have to obey me if I, you know. You're not, you're not thinking about obedience. You're not thinking about in the positive. Now, how does all this, this being fitting in the Lord, how do you take on the sense of wonder? I, mentioned, I said, Evan, you, you said earlier that you were going to you thrill us with how good beautiful. You pick it on us. Yeah, that's brief. The pain will be over shortly. How does it become wonderful? If we don't, okay, we admit that's what the text says. We admit we're Christians. We admit that we're using devices to get out from under it. And perhaps we've got temptations that we succumb to and nagging and insecurity and, and usurpation and all sorts of other things like that. Tools we use to not do this. But you're saying that this can become real to us somehow in such a way that we will be changed. Not Modern women who don't like it, who feel, yeah, I'm under the thumb, I joined Christianity, I can't get out of it. So like, so like the Book of the Month Club, when you try to quit and they won't keep sending you books. How do you stop the soft divorce? How do we redeem the loss of love? Because remember, as you put separation between you and your husband, that's what's going not just, the, not just the romantic love, the erotic love, and you'll see the diminishment of that. Sometimes it'll just be the erotic love. You say, I still love my husband. I just want to, don't want to do him. You know. It's kind of icky and unchristian anyway, isn't it? Right? Well, that's where we transfer. You say, well, that's the end of the book. We're done. Nope. I'm going on. Going on. Preaching it with power. Now, the booklet you were given, Jane's Progress, is an essay I've been working on for years on an idea I've been working on for even more years. And it comes from, uh, the, the title is an allusion to John Donne's poem, Love's Progress. Because the character Jane in the book, That Hideous Strength, is studying John Donne. And uh, it was sort of, I figured, ah, it would be a little inside joke. I don't know if you're familiar with the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength, uh, science fiction novels that all involve a character named Elwyn Ransom. And Elwyn Ransom goes to Mars in Out of the Silent Planet in the first book. Uh, he goes to Venus in the second book at Paralandra. And then he is sort of a more background character in the third book, central but background, uh, where it happens on Earth. And that hideous strength um, is largely about the effect of satanically back secular humanism. Okay? What happens when the evil in the world becomes organized and literally plans to do it a foul turn? 
and they're working on bad, bad things. I think it's like they want all hell to break loose. All hell to break loose. And uh, they're taking over a college in England and, and slowly working their malevolence in the society. And in the front of that plot, that's the broad plot, and Ransom is fighting these people, or against these people. He's a Christian, they're not. And in front of this plot is a young married couple, Jane and Mark Studdick. They're not Christians, and their marriage is going through soft divorce. He's not entirely aware of that, because he's a guy. She's very aware of that. The first word of the book is matrimony. It's the first word of the book. The last fat bit of the book is her going into her husband uh, with a right heart. That's the end of the book. Her marriage is the axis of this book, even though there's a bigger, more crisis-driven plot regarding the works of Satan. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so I'm giving you, I went through the book, I had a text copy I, I got from somebody online, and I went through and I eliminated all the parts of the book that had nothing to do with marriage. There was still a raft of stuff. And you could read through it that way. If you knew the rest of the plot, you could fill in the blanks quickly without having to read it. I started to say, my gosh, this is brilliant. And so I wrote this essay after having processed it for quite a while. Now, we knew from earlier parts of this week that, um, oh, as a warning, this is my wife. Uh, you know, that's the parade wave. How's the parade wave? Wave, wave. Hang, 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 hang. Something like that. Yeah. Um, Leslie and I followed along with me over the years and under, you know, listened to me spout on about various things. I want to warn you, she can talk a little bit towards the end about this effect on her. And it's, it's huge the effect of your mind being changed to the wonder and joy of what Ransom teaches Jane and what progress she goes through. Okay? That's a warning. The testimony of Anna Berry in the back was from a single woman's perspective of as an intelligent woman who found herself tracking too much with Jane in her rebellious period and realizing what God was trying to tell her. Um, so, um, those things are, I, so I want to put that on your plate right now. Now, I'm not going to go and say, this is kind of a lot of stuff, and I don't know how he's going to get through it in the remaining hour. I'm, I'm skimming, folks. I'm just giving you the high points. <coughs> now, this you Jane... You will want to read it. Yeah, you'll, you'll want to read the booklet, and you may wish to read the books. I would recommend you start with Out of the Silent Planet and read through the series so you know who Ransom is and what has happened to him, what has made him, what he is in book three. But uh, with this in mind, you'll get a lot of blessings. Far more quotes on marriage than I have put in this article. And uh, you'll notice how big they are. Now Jane is a, um, she's an academic. Uh, she's married to an academic. Her marriage is not going well. 
She's trying to struggle her way through those private emotional problems. At the same time, in the broader book's plot, she's having visions in her dreams that she knows are scary and they're driving her uh, uh, to think that they have something to do with reality. And so she's looking for answers. And she's got comments, uh, like she's studying John Donne, and she comes up with the idea, do, do men want, John Donne says, hope not for mind in women at their best, sweetness and wit, they are but mummy possessed. Hope not for mind in women. Did any man really want mind in women? That's what she's struggling with. She, she's an academic, remember, she's an intellectual. Lewis says she's not a very original thinker, but she is driven to be involved in it. It says she liked her clothes to be rather severe and in colors that were really good on serious aesthetic grounds. Clothes that would make it plain to everyone that she was an intelligent adult and not a woman of the chocolate box variety. And because of this preference, she did not know that she was interested in clothes at all. But she was, but she did not know she was. Now, she encounters some Christians, another professor's wife, Mrs. Dimble, or Mother Dimble, and Mother Dimble sees right through it, and she asks her some personal questions about her relationship with her husband. The phrase, do you hate being kissed, comes out of her mouth, and Jane falls apart, crying, into Mother Dimble's uh, shoulder, and that ticks her off, not Mother Dimble, but Jane, because it's that kind of weakness she can't stand, and she knows when she turns to her husband for his protection, it usually ends up in sex. And she hates that. She gets deeply angry at these things. Now, because of this, these dreams she has, she, Mrs. Dimble recommends that she go talk to a Grace Ironwood, a doctor who uh, could help her out at a place called St. Anne's on the Hill. And uh, it turns out that St. Anne's on the Hill is a place much like the big house. Uh, but a, a bigger and more monastic, and it's a place where all these Christians have gathered uh, in their stand against evil. But Grace Ironwood, she just hears it with sort of like a psychologist, psychiatrist. So she goes, gets an apartment, goes to visit her, and while she's wa she she's walking into the this monastery, and and she thinks of a quote, and when she's in the waiting room, she looks down at a book, it opens it up, and it opens to the quote she had just thought of. And that quote is the quote of mystery that I didn't explain a couple of nights ago. She got up and opened the one book that lay on the table in the middle of the room. Instantly, her eyes lit on the following words. The beauty of the female is the root of joy to the female, as well as to the male. And it is no accident that the goddess of love is older and stronger than the god. To desire, to desire the desiring of her own beauty is the vanity of Lilith but to desire the enjoying of her own beauty is the obedience of Eve. And to both it is in the lover that the beloved tastes her own delightfulness. As obedience is the stairway of pleasure, so humility is the... At that moment, the door was suddenly opened. It's the quote that outlines the rest of the book. And I, like last time, I said, I don't understand any of that. Lilith, who's that? Lilith is... Adam's first wife. Okay. Uh, my Bible? Where's my Bible? Not in the Bible. Uh, Lilith is a Jewish myth where Adam's first wife um, 
who is very disobedient and wouldn't submit to Adam at all, runs off and marries a demon. This stems from the Liglutu, uh, the night hag demon of Babylonian myth. The Jews uh, and the scriptures do mention the Lilith demon, but not uh, Lilith as a character. So they had built this mythology around her. But Lewis is referring to that. Lesbians celebrate Lilith, just so you get an idea. Of There's the Lilith Fair and things yeah. like that, that that they are named for this, uh, this night hag. Great. <laughs> But Lewis is saying a couple of things here. I want you to track with them. One, it says the female beauty is the object of desire to both the man and the woman. That goes back to our adornment and our natural desire to be about our own beauty as women. If, you, if I were one. <laughs> and I'd be hot. i open my shirt a little bit. Um, now that's a hard... You're going to take some thinking time on that one. How, what? What? Well, stop and think. We're not that attractive. It's not like we're desirable or anything. Women are literally desirable. Just looking at them. They're decorative. And women like, I mentioned this about the magazines. Men's magazines, pictures of women. Women's magazines, pictures of women. Okay? We're all about the women's looks. All of us. And that's what women talk about. That's what women go do together. They go shop and they put on makeup. They have Mary Kay parties together. So they can all look at each other's beauty and be entranced with each other's beauty. Secondly, there's a single vice of vanity in our minds. If we're about our beauty, it's only one place that can rest. Vanity. And he splits it into two things. Vanity of Lilith is to desire the desiring of her beauty. Is that what he said? To desire the desiring of her own beauty is the vanity of Lilith. But then he says to desire the enjoying of her own beauty is the obedience of Eve. So it's a split uh, split assessment. So when you recommend a, to a Christian woman, well, why don't you be more about becoming more beautiful? In the inner adornment camp, especially, because that's what the scriptures asked you to do. But all the natural beauties that God has made women have, and that you enhance by makeup or hairstyles or clothes or whatever it is, you enhance those things. Those are secondary to the inner adornment. But God has given all those things and the recognition of beauty. You've been handed this. Lewis says, Well, why don't you hang on to that for a moment and consider it as a, a point of leverage? in your life. It is going to bring me to where I need to be biblically. My own beauty. My own desirability. But you have to have the two categories of vanity or assessment of your beauty. And one has to say, I can't be that because that just wants to be desired. Wants my, wants my beauty to have an effect. So I can have my way in this world. Eve says, no, my beauty is not to have effect, it's to be enjoyed by others. And I become thereby a servant with my beauty. I become obedient. It's the obedience of Eve against the vanity of Lilith. She becomes obedient because she sees her beauty as a gift of enjoyment. 
all the aspects of your beauty, from your soul, to your head, to your body, to all the aspects that you are, you are that thing for someone. Thirdly, each woman is proved out or gains a life in the presence of the lover. The lover's relationship to them, it says, it is in the lover that the beloved tastes her own delightfulness. What kind of delightfulness you're looking for, just that tasting your own power because you can have your way, or tasting the fact that your Lord has his way with you and you have provided this gift for him. Lastly, that obedience, obedience is a sexual thing. Now, I know we talked about sex two nights ago, and you probably calmed down. Um, but this has got sex all over it. I mean, sex like the sex act all over it. That obedience finds a woman granting her husband herself because that's why she's beautiful. She knows that's why. She, like Esther spent a year in the harem getting herself oiled for six months and then powdered for six months. Okay? You like that, ladies? It's a spa. <laughs> but you got to sleep with a fat Persian king at the end of it. But uh, other than that, that has an oily beard and, uh, you know, Middle Eastern looks. Uh, but he was big and rich and tour. So it's a great, it's a great, but the, you, oh, you know, I know you might say sarcastically to your husband when he might go, honey, we've got to go, and you're still in front of the mirror, I'm doing this for you. Well, probably a better tone would convince us. Um, uh, but in a sense, you are. Your beauty is not to make sure that the world considers you still desirable and you can still have whatever power a woman can get by being desirable. It is to provide an enjoyable place, the enjoyment of having a woman who's attractive on your arm, down to the enjoyment of having sexual time with her, to the enjoyment of being in her company and, and the conversation that she is because she's devoted herself to good works and has become a beautiful soul. All those things are uh, things that, that a woman offers obediently to her husband. Now, at that point, she meets Miss Ironwood. She's got this, the, the, the quote never comes back into the book. But Lewis heavily, you know, he has her prophesy that she's going to see it, then she sees it. And then if you follow it in the rest of the book, it's what the rest of the book's about. This coming to pass in her life. And, but Grace Ironwood, Miss Ironwood, asks her, does your husband know you have come to us? Now, that comes up a few times. Her husband for the sake of those who have not read, has gone off with Satan's bunch. He, she's at this Christian place. She's not a Christian. But he has been drawn away by his own folly into this group that is going after world domination of all sorts of grotesque variety, as only Lewis can describe. And she's not getting along with her husband. And she's a little bothered by this because she's going through soft divorce. And she says, of her own thoughts, one has had to have lived one's own life 
to avoid entanglements and interferences had long been one of her first principles. Even when she had discovered that she was going to marry Mark if he asked her, the thought, but I must keep up my own life, had arisen at once and had never, for more than a few minutes at a stretch, been absent from her mind. Some resentment against love itself and therefore against Mark for thus invading her life remained. She was at least very vividly aware how much a woman gives up in getting married. Mark seemed to her insufficiently aware of this. Though she did not formulate it, this fear of being invaded and entangled was the deepest ground of her determination not to have a child. Or not for a long time yet. One had one's own life to live. She's a nice woman. You can tell she's attractive right on the cover. Of course, I drew that picture, but uh, I thought of her as an attractive woman. She is an attractive woman in the, in the book. Yeah, she is. Um, it, it, it even shows up in their problems over housework. And Lewis does a marvelous view, a marvelous, uh, very understanding demarcation of how men and women conflict over housework and washing dishes. Uh, Read it for yourself. A little bit is mentioned here in the article. But whatever the case, they still pretend that everything's okay. They're still coming back to their house and meeting up and pretending to be in good, in a good place marriage-wise. And a lot of marriages, they go through the soft divorce and they still, in public or in, even in the public of just the two of them, talk as if nothing's wrong. It says here, And so, all evening, the male bird displayed his plumage, and the female played her part and asked questions and laughed and feigned more interest than she felt. Both were young, and if neither loved very much, each was still anxious to be admired. That's how people continue in their marriages, as if that's all that you have to get. That's you're, you're going to have these, this angst, you're going to have this problem, you're not going to get along. Well, the Bible and God and what he designed marriage enables us to encounter something far bigger that will undo you. Now, this whole idea of Grace Ironwood asking her about, does your husband know you've come to us, comes up again. She meets another Christian couple, Arthur and Camilla Deniston. And Arthur and Camilla are good people. Good people. And they're from St. Anne's. They're in the group. He's also a professor, old friend of her husband, Mark, her husband. And uh, they're spending some time together. And he asks, she wants to know if she can come to St. Anne's. And Arthur makes the mistake of saying something very un-20th century. Do you, what he says, uh, Well, said Deniston, hesitating a little, the head or the authorities he obeys have rather old-fashioned notions. He wouldn't like a married woman to come in, if it could be avoided, without her husband's without consulting that he, right about there, he figures, oops. Do you mean I am to ask Mark's permission, said Jane, with a little strained laugh? Can you imagine the strain in that laugh in a modern woman? I have to ask my husband's permission. And at the end of that section, he says, for a moment she looked at Mr. Deniston with real dislike. She saw him and Mark and the Fisher King man, and this preposterous Indian faker, simply as men, complacent, patriarchal figures making arrangements for women as if women were children or bartering them like cattle. She was very angry. So she pushes these people away. These are Christians, 
pushing them away. And you begin to realize, when I read to you about Lewis's comments on Milton last night, about how the ancient world, the old-fashioned world, thought of hierarchy. If you want to read on, I can uh, give you a copy of his chapter on hierarchy, or you can get a copy of Preface to Paradise Lost, or read his discarded image, which is a grammar of the classical and medieval model of the universe. He's operating in terms of those things. But Denison says his masters have old-fashioned notions, and Jane wants help, and she wants to be around these people, but not with this sort of really anachronistic viewpoints. Um, but she's also aware that these are nice people, and there's more and more not nice people around at the university and in this satanic group that is meeting, and more and more awful, awful people, and bad things are happening. And she's sort of, with these dreams, she has a desire to be with nice people, and although she got very mad at Arthur and Camilla, um, she knows they're nice. You might want to think in terms of, as if you have any struggles with this, so they say, do I, do I know people who live according to this? Are they nice? Not the people who mimic it. Not the church groups that are all about wives submitting to their husband and they, you know, even if they don't homeschool, they look like they do. You know, that kind of church. <laughs> and so the women are walking around with a kind of a, a dodgy look. They can't meet you in the eye and because they become servile. And the men are all cocks of the walk, and they, and they, they, they've got their theology straight, and they're, you know, difficult. We're not recommending that you play at this. Lewis is recommending the brilliance of this novel is that Lewis takes a what he knows inside the book is an uncomfortable proposition. How do you get a modern woman who's an intellectual to submit to her husband? Because that's what we're talking about. We know that that's the problem from the earlier part of this lecture. That that's what the Bible expects. How do we step into this? Not by delineating all the duties that the scriptures lay out for you and having a list that's on the fridge. But how do you take a different view that says this is wonderful? This is beautiful. When Anna Berry, we were talking to her after the, when she heard this and it had shook her pretty big and and uh, I was talking to her in the library, and she told Leslie and me that she said, it's, 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 I said, you do know this is only a novel. This is not real. And two, it's only an author writing a novel. It's not scripture. You do know that. And I wanted to make sure, that, you know, just because it's C.S. Lewis, it has to be right. Um, she said, yeah, this was against her it had unmade her. And she said, it, it's so evidently good. It had taken her notion of herself and kicked down a flight of stairs. And she came away with, it's so good. I want you to think, because you're women and God made you this way, that, that you, you might stop and listen to that which is good and beautiful. Um, recognize that these these qualities that are guiding Jane can be gate-guiding you as well. Now, she does end up going back to St. Anne's, and Miss um, um, Ironwood is going to introduce her to the director. That's Ransom, Elwin Ransom, the, the hero of the three books. 
And uh, Miss Ironwood's taken her to see him. She raised her hand to knock on the door. Jane thought to herself, be careful. Don't let get let in for anything. All these long passages and low voices will make a fool of you. If you don't look out, you'll become another of this man's female adorers. And she had gotten the image from Camilla and Mrs. Dimble and Grace Ironwood that whoever this guy was, these women worshipped the ground he walked on. And she was, you know, kind of viewing that sort of that's obviously a psychosis or obviously some kind of cult mentality, not normal people. She's taken in to meet Ransom. He's sitting there in a chair. He can't move because he has a wound on his heel that he got in the second book that will never heal. No pun intended. Before her eyes had taken in it in, she was annoyed and in a way ashamed to see that Miss Ironwood was courtesying. I won't, contended in Jane's mind with, I can't. For it had been true in her dream, she couldn't. This is the young lady, sir, said Miss Ironwood. Jane looked, and instantly her world was unmade. She encounters Ransom, and Ransom has been, he was just a philologist at a, univers at a university, goes to Mars, not something everybody does, but had adventures and changes he went through. He ends up going to Paralandra, Venus, and he becomes almost, when he goes through this pale, sickly, weakling professor to this golden-bearded, strong, wounded uh, young man. I mean, he had middle, early middle age. He also has an effect of seeming young, but then at times seeming old, and Jane goes back and forth in her mind about whether that, yes, he certainly indeed looks much younger than he is, and then later on she thinks, how could I have ever thought he looked young? So there's something about him that just even transcend, transcends age. The strength of youth and the wisdom of, of age, both of them are, are present in him. And she says, she had, or so she had believed, disliked bearded faces, except for old men with white hair. But that was because she had long since forgotten the imagined Arthur of her childhood, and the imagined Solomon, too. Solomon, for the first time in many years, the bright solar blend of king and lover and magician, which hangs about that name, stole back upon her mind. For the first time in all those years, she tasted the word king itself, with all linked associations of battle, marriage, priesthood, mercy, and power. At that moment, as her eyes first rested on his face, Jane forgot who she was, and where, and her faint grudge against Grace Ironwood, and her more obscure grudge against Mark, and her childhood in her father's house. It was, of course, only for a flash. But her world was unmade. She knew that. Anything might happen now. Now, she has encountered somebody that, unlike her husband, this guy is undeniably a lord. It is not a matter of, am I going to convince myself that my husband is a lord, because the Bible tells me so. She's met a lord. And she can't think anything else of him. So she has this discussion with him, and it's all sorts of ethics, it's back and forth, it's you know, he's got her trapped every which way she goes. And he's not talking to her directly about the Lord, but he's getting there. And uh, 
because he is guiding her and changing her slowly. She's unmade by this encounter, just seeing him. And then the conversation corrects her and hems her in and pushes her different places. And then he is um, letting her know that she's probably not going to be able to stay at St. Anne's. Her husband's lack of permission, all that sort of thing comes into it. And she says, I'm so unhappy because she's not getting her way. She wants to stay at St. Anne's. She's not getting her way. And he says, are you unhappy now? And she thinks about it and says, no. Then she says, it'll be worse now if I go back. He says, will it? I don't know. No, I suppose not. And for a little time, Jane was hardly conscious of anything but peace and well-being, the comfort of her own body and the chair where she sat, and the sort of clear beauty in the colors and proportions of the room. She was encountering, as she slowly, she got unmade from, she couldn't hang on to this modern claim. She was going to mentally, but just emotionally she got hit with this, and she is enjoying what she is being made by this encounter. Now, She's still got her mind about her, so she's objecting to the old-fashioned notions about her husband approving of her staying there. And she says that Arthur Dennison said it was old-fashioned notions, and Ransom says, no, that was a joke. They're not old-fashioned, but they are very old. And we have to remember that, because some of these mimic-type churches, mimic cultures, let's look like, let's be something old-style, because that's when kids obeyed their parents and Kids were raised strong, and, and wives knew their place, and blah, blah, blah. So let's go pretend we live in the Middle Ages. Let's go pretend we live in the 1950s. Let's go pretend, whatever the period you think is glorious. The thing about old-fashioned notions, if they really are of God, they're not old-fashioned. They are the way reality is. If God is this way, if his heavens are this way, it's still this way. It doesn't matter what Voltaire or Rousseau or John Locke said. It doesn't matter. It didn't change a thing. The heavens stayed what the heavens were. And so when you're in touch with what God is describing the heavens as, you're getting not old-fashioned, just old. And current. And to be. All right? Now, there is a... Uh, an analysis that goes on about her marriage, which is our subject. And um, she starts to admit to the soft divorce that she has. She says, what if the woman loved, whether the woman loved her husband? Would it, you know, what if, it, if that's not the case? And she thinks she's springing something on Ransom. And he says, you've been telling me this. She said, I probably shouldn't have told you that. He said, you've been telling me this since you first came in. You've been telling me that you've been distant from your husband, that you've been divorcing your husband in your mind, and everything you've said. Well, she wants to know the answer. He says, it would depend. He said, I suppose it would depend on how he lost your love. Now, this uh, separation wasn't always the case. Obviously, they were close enough to get married. And 
she wants to justify the soft divorce, and she says, well, maybe our marriage was just a mistake. And that's how people start, you know, when they don't really have, he's not committed adultery, or he's done, not done something bad, he didn't beat her. You know, you're, you're still drifting apart, you're still getting unmarried, because of what you refuse to think like and refuse to do. Um, and that unmarrying becomes this software. So you have to start making excuses because if you want out, because at some point you're going to be standing by the door, both of you, him by the back door, you by the front door, you just want to turn the knob and get out. So you want to justify because that hard divorce is a big choice, a sociological choice. Now people know your marriage didn't succeed. You failed. Soft divorce, you can fool people for a long time. He, she wants to know what his masters, the people he's talking about, which actually is God, <laughs> it's in this case, but, or the gods and God, um, what would they say about a circumstance where love had fallen away and, and it was probably a mistake to get married? He says, I will tell you if you really want to know, said the director. Please, said Jane, reluctantly. They would say, he answered, that you do not fail in obedience through lack of love, but have lost love because you never attempted obedience. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, that's the, 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 the... What's amazing about Lewis, not only he could think it, but that he could say it. In a modern culture, to be read again and again, it's still published, it's not banned, Somehow people manage to still think it's a worthwhile book, even though you're sort of like Huck Finn. They'll try to buy and ban Huck Finn because the N-word's in it. But this, which he's telling the wife, you lost love because you didn't attempt obedience. Not, you don't need to love him. You know how I said the other day, you don't want to wait for enough romance to get you to do the right thing? Your romance is the effect, the punctuation of the right thing lived. So Ransom is suggesting that love itself, along with sexual performance, depends on the presence of the obedient. Well, you can have sex and disobedience. You can have romance and disobedience. As long as there is a degree of... Well, what, Jane probably fell in love with Mark because of... You know, when you're courting, when you're dating, you know, men are so gallant and opening the door and and holding your arm as you cross the street, and you feel kind of young and, and, and uh, what is it, stupid and, and in love. Now, why are you in love? Because little petty courting hierarchies are coming at you, and you feel, oh, he's so honorable, and you get to play act in your own little mind about how honorable that makes you, and good that makes you feel on this little dating, uh, this little dating realm. But after you're married, the toilet seat got left up for the 58th time. You know, he's no longer holding your arm as you cross the street. It's no longer his, his strengths are no longer evident to you. You lost obedience. You never attempted obedience. You were just play acting in that falling in love stage. It's an erotic thing, obedience. Now, so Lewis just said that, right? You lost love. Well, he didn't say erotic, Evan. Well, here it comes. He just says, you never attempted obedience. The next phrase, something in Jane, 
that would have normally have reacted to such a remark with anger or laughter was banished to a remote distance where she could still but only just hear its voice by the fact that the word obedience, Lewis capitalizes the word, but certainly not obedience to Mark, came over her in that room and in that presence like a strange oriental perfume, perilous, seductive, and ambiguous. Stop it, said the director sharply. The director knows, Ransom knows, she's getting the hots for Ransom. He is Solomon, Arthur, the king, the answer man, everything. My father always had standards about canceling women. You don't pray with them, you don't drive them home alone, you don't lead them spiritually because they will get attached to you. Ransom stops her mid-erotic sensation, the word obedience. And because it is found a place where it can rest satisfactorily is, uh, is exciting to her. She doesn't know where it's quite going. It's seductive. It's ambiguous. Let's toy with that. He doesn't let her toy with it. Jane stared at him open mouth. There was a few moments of silence during which the exotic fragrance faded away. You were saying, my dear, resumed the director. Stopped her in her tracks. But it was the power of the obedience. It was in the wrong place. It lets you know that Lewis thinks that there's power in it, or means that there's power in it. And so she comes back, now she's saying, okay, I thought love meant equality, she says, and free companionship. And this is where Lewis lays it out. You say, I thought he's been laying it out throughout. Yeah, he has been. I kind of come up with a new word. And this word gets more important. Ah, equality, said the director. We must talk of that some other time. Yes, we must all be guarded by equal rights from one another's greed because we are fallen, just as we must all wear clothes for the same reason. But the naked body should be there underneath the clothes, ripening for the day when we shall need them no longer. Equality is not the deepest thing, you know. She says, I always thought that it was just what it was. I thought it was in their souls that people were equal. You were mistaken, he said gravely. <laughs> you know, you, we're sitting here in the 21st century, North Idaho, trained in civics from, you know, and we heard this chanted to us. I mean, these are, these are the, the holy words of Thomas Jefferson or something. And Ransom is saying, you were mistaken. That is the last place where they're equal. Equality before the law, equality of incomes, that is very well. Equality guards life, it doesn't make it. It is medicine, not food. You might as well try to warm yourself with the blue book. But surely in marriage, she says. Worse and worse, said the director. Courtship knows nothing of it, nor does fruition. By that he means doing the nasty. Okay? Courtship, at the beginning, when you're courting somebody, it's hierarchical. When you're having sex, it's hierarchical. What has free companionship to do with that? Those who are enjoying something or suffering something together are companions. Those who suffer or enjoy one another are not. Do you not know how bashful friendship is? Friends, comrades, do not even look at each other. Friendship would be ashamed. I thought, said Jane, and stopped. I see, said the director. It is not your fault. They never warned you. No one ever told you that obedience, humility, is an erotic necessity. You are putting equality just where it ought not be. 
Lewis is saying, and you can reject C.S. Lewis. I mean, it's not, you know, you can go to church next Sunday and not face any kind of um, uh, rejection, shunning. Well, I don't believe everything C.S. Lewis. I say that about some things C.S. Lewis teaches. Feel free to reject this, but consider if he's right. Is obedience, humility, an erotic necessity? And if you have slowly divorced yourself from your spouse in your unwillingness to recognize the hierarchy of the universe, the inequality of things, has it cost you your love, which sets you more on the path to the soft divorce, and maybe even the hard divorce? Marriage, courtship, and sexuality are unequal affairs. Now, this is problematic for her, but it changed her mind. I mean, her, she was unmade when she met Ransom. She's being remade in increments. And she's sent away. Ransom does not keep her at St. Anne, sends her back. And although she wanted to stay, she is going away in obedience to Ransom. And it says, it describes this great section. You'd have to read the whole thing. But there's four Janes, as she delineates them, in the train carriage with herself. Four, four of ourselves, and she, one is just the teenage infatuated girl. I love that man. Just, just every word he said and every look. The second one was just infuriated about the first one. Okay? The second Jane was, what a complete junior high response. The third one was... Um, a little bit disturbed by the moral ambiguity of such joy, such satisfaction, because she was obviously infatuated with Ransom. She's married to another man, infatuated with Ransom, but Ransom was pointing her back to her husband. And she was finding joy in that process of being pointed by her obvious Lord to go back to her actual Lord because there was obedience in all of it. And it was, and it, was, it, was, it was causing her some moral consternation, but the fourth Jane was just one of joy. It says she was in the sphere of Jove, and mid light and music and festal pomp, brimmed with life and radiant and health, jocund and clothed in shining garments. She thought scarcely at all of the curious sensations which immediately preceded the director's dismissal of her and made that dismissal almost a relief. When she tried to, it immediately led her back, her thoughts back to the director himself. Whatever she tried to think led her to the director himself and in him to joy. And this is where the whole beauty thing and the quote of mystery comes in. She suddenly realizes she's becoming more beautiful. This joyful acquiescence to submission. She comes up with enjoying the old man she's talking to on the train. She starts thinking about listening to Bach and reading Shakespearean sonnets when she gets home and she's going to make large quantities of buttered toast. <laughs> and the, all these desires are just, just jumping up out of her. And she also reached rejoiced also in the consciousness of her own beauty, for she had the sensation, it may have been false in fact, but it had nothing to do with vanity, that it was growing and expanding like a magic flower with every minute that passed. In such a mood, it was only natural after the old countryman had got out at Cure Hardy to stand up and look at herself in the mirror, which confronted her on the wall of the compartment. 
Certainly she was looking well. She was looking unusually well. <laughs> and once more, there was little vanity in this, for beauty was made for others. Her beauty belonged to the director. It belonged to him so completely that he could even decide not to keep it for himself, but to order that it be given to another by an act of obedience lower and therefore higher, more unconditional and therefore more delighting than if he had demanded it for himself. This is like heroin. For a woman's lusts, her beauty, her joy in herself, her discovery of complete soul quietness, finding herself submitting her way down. She's met a Lord. Now, what's interesting about Ransom, now, Ransom doesn't exist in your life, okay? It's a book. You can read about him, but you can't meet him. God does. And Ransom does move Jane on, not back to her husband first, but on to God. God's name in the book is Mal Eldil. And uh, uh, it's called God as well, the Christian God. And he asked Jane if she will be placed under the obedience. Was he going to, is she going to obey Malado? She says, no, but I can put myself in obedience to you. And he says, that's enough. God knows that you're going the right direction, basically. And uh, she begins to think about God. She begins to think about what she had thought about God regarding, uh, you know, her liberal notions. Um, she had always embarrassed her, religious things had embarrassed her. She has this great, this great description of, of Jesus in Sunday school or something like that. The smell of pews, horrible lithographs of the Savior, apparently seven feet high, with the face of a consumptive girl. The embarrassment of confirmation classes, the nervous affability of clergymen. That was what religion was to her, you know. The world had already turned out to be so very unlike what she had expected. The old ring fence had been smashed completely. One might be in for anything. Maladil might be, quite simply and crudely, God. There might be life after death, a heaven, a hell. The thought glowed in her mind for a second like a spark that had fallen on shavings, then a second later, like those shavings, her whole mind was in a blazer. With just enough left outside the blaze to utter some kind of protest, but but this is unbearable, I ought to have been told. It did not at that moment occur to her even to doubt that if such things existed, they would be totally and unchangeably adverse to her. Now she was realizing she had found a Lord in Ransom. She was realizing she found a Lord in God. Though she's not in good terms with God. She has not submitted to God. She knows he's there. And she starts to look at, she's fitting into it. She has come back to St. Anne's because the bad guys had kidnapped her and tortured her and she got escaped and, and managed to get to St. Anne's and so they keep her there because she has been threatened and uh, he's like, I want to know about the rest of the story I'm going to get a book mm -hmm. um, we only got a few minutes left um, but she's, she's they're up at this uh, monastery and uh, Ivy Maggs who was a low class woman who'd been her cleaning lady and her husband's in jail um, has been there, and Mrs. Dimble has been there. They've been run out of the university by the Satan people. And, uh, and they're making a bed in a lodge. The women are down making a bed in the lodge. And so Jane is looking at these other women, and she's getting these weird notions about 
how in the, the age where these things were normal, women could be, as she puts it, a mixture of prudery and sensuality. A mixture. Making Shakespearean jokes about cod pieces and cuckoldry at one moment and kneeling devoutly before altars at the next. That's what the women were like. And, uh, and she has in this moment, and I say, well, couldn't this be a normal, normal marriage seminar, for heaven's sake? <laughs> at this point, you're going, my head's going to explode. Where is all this coming from? I never heard of Lilith before tonight. And cuckoldry, how often does that word come up? <laughs> I think I know what a cod piece is, but I don't want to draw a picture. <laughs> um, so, you say, what, aren't we just normal? Can't you just tell us what to do and let us go? No, can't do that. Because that's just the way I roll. No, I, I say, no, everyone doesn't need it. I, I, I put this in at this point because Mrs. Dimble and Ivy Mags don't need it. Mrs. Dimble is an older school of thought. She's an older woman. She said, back in our day, we didn't have to be told to love our husbands. We just understood what things were. Ivy Maggs is low class and uneducated. Her husband's in jail. She still looks up to her husband. She still admires her and honors her husband. They're different. They don't have the problem. I am bringing this up to people who have, if you did, in the modern world, people who have imbibed the egalitarian notion they have to hear. Because if you try to just tell them what to do, you're asking them to behave like they understand and not give them any of the freedom from the antagonistic worldview that they're trying to operate from. They're trying to be obedient, not just for God, but against their own, their own brainwashed state. You only need this if your thoughts are wrong about the matter. You don't need it, just absolutely. You just need it if you need it. So, there's basically a vision then. It gets a little weird. She falls asleep, has a vision. We think she's asleep, kind of a vision, kind of a dream. The goddess Venus shows up with some chubby little dwarves. Goddess Venus and her jugs are hanging out. She's like a Phoenician, bronzed woman, because well, Crete and the Monoan civilization, which was big into Venus and Aphrodite, uh, she's, she's wearing a Monoan outfit, which the, the, the chest was showing for the women, for the priestesses in any way. And there are these chubby little gnomes, little guys running around with little hats on. And so it's, it's weird, like dreams can be. And, uh, and they're in this lodge, and this woman is this, this sexual almost monstrously sexual presence. And the little guys are running around lighting things on fire in the room. But if the fire doesn't burn, it turns into plant. And then ivies and plant growth comes out of the flames and taking over the, and it's burning down and she finally wakes up and realizes it was a vision. She tells Ransom about it and she begins to realize that he described, well, probably real. It was probably the real Venus. I mean, the real Venus, the earthly wraith of the real Venus. Uh, so he was, she realized that he was in good diplomatic relations with old paganism. 
the Christian who thought this way got along with old paganism, didn't agree with it or follow it, but understood each other, and she was way outside of that, just like she didn't recognize Mother Dimble or Ivy Mags's, you know, prudery and sensuality as they made a marriage bed ready. You know, there's, there's these notions. Now, she also has to, she, she has to be stopped from her modernism, but she also has a recrafted spirituality that is that gaseous nirvana-like thing, you know, that kind of, you become desexualized and everything is equal and it's democratic and, and she's beginning to realize that marriage is like the lowest rung on the ladder of what all things are like. It is the scenic overlook of everything. It is the simplest illustration of what the cosmos and God and the gods are like. That all, all relationship of authority had this, not sexual like sexual act to it, but masculine, feminine submission and lordship to it. And that this was the easiest place to learn Christ and the church. This is the easiest place to learn it. You get to have sex, you get to enjoy each other's company, you get to understand membership in the most direct and crudest way. It's, a, it's, a, it's an illustration. And it's telling us about all the things above us, all the way up to God. Now she thinks that's kind of a, an irreverent notion. Um, but Ransom lets her know that her problem is that it's pride. He says, but your trouble has been what the old poets called Donguerre. We call it pride. You are offended by the masculine itself, the loud, eruptive, possessive thing, the gold lion, the bearded bull, which breaks through hedges and scatters the little kingdom of your primness as the dwarves scattered the carefully made bed. The male you could have escaped, for it exists only on the biological level, but the masculine none of us can escape. What is above and beyond all things is so masculine that we are all feminine in relation to it. You had better agree with your adversary quickly. And she says, do you mean I have to become a Christian? That's what she said in response to that. He says, it looks like it. This is the evangelistic moment. Her coming to realize that there's a sexualized cosmos over her and marriage done well, marrying, marrying is proof of understanding, proof of a deeper grasp of the, of the heights. Because you know what it's being done all the way to the top. Submitting and lording and submitting and lording. All the way down to you. You mean I have to become a Christian? It looks like it. And she notices that in spite of this irreverent sensuality of the cosmos, which didn't match her view, all of the people at St. Anne's didn't talk about religion. They talked about God. Because they were informed. They were living a life that was dealing with a God who was eminently masculine, the most masculine thing ever. You could not go higher than God, so he is the ultimate of the masculine. And as they put it, as she puts it, not of some picture in their minds of a mist steaming upward, which was her notion, rather of strong and skillful hands thrust down to make and mend 
and perhaps even destroy. She knows she's been wrong. She gets saved right about this point, next to a gooseberry bush in the garden. She, she suddenly bows the knee to God. And in all of this process, remember we said earlier, to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, she's discovering what it is to be reverent. C.S. Lewis wandered away from the faith as a, his child growing up, Christianity, gave it up, became an atheist, started getting interested in Norse mythology, and he credits studying Norse mythology, which he never believed was true. He says, he just said, it gave me, when I came back to Christianity, a pagan's reverence for the divine. I understood what it was to be divine. I understood God's. And this book helps you in that way. If you read it, I want you to be thinking in those terms. She is realizing that Maladil might agree with her laughing uncles that teased her about her smarts. That the universe might be a silly place. Wouldn't take her with full seriousness. And she bows the knee and becomes a Christian. Now this is the end of the book. You say, well, good, because it looks like the end of the time, and I'm thinking of pie right about now. <laughs> we'll try to stop thinking of pie. Um, Ransom, at the end of all the adventures, all sorts of wild things happen. Merlin shows up, blows the place to smithereens, all sorts of fun things happen. Merlin wants to kill her because she wouldn't have a baby. Just great stuff. Um, it's all resolved. The end, is, the end happens. And, and, uh, <laughs> and frankly, let me put it this way. Uh, years ago, years ago, at Drones, I used to tell guys, Hey guys, that hideous strength. It's about sex. That's all it's about. They go, Evan, you're crazy. And your mind's in the gutter. I said, it is. And they discounted me for years. And then they read it again. Now I'm somebody. <laughs> but not only was the book about sex, here at the end of the book, I, I won't, it's not a spoiler. But let's just say at the Garden of St. Anne's, all sorts of animals of all different species are copulating in the garden. Okay? And they're doing it discreetly because they're private. They're not showing off. But everybody's having sex. And Ransom sends everybody away. Essentially, to have sex. You know, the, and he sends Jane. Her husband has escaped, and she sends her back to her husband. And he says... Go in obedience, and you will find love. Oh, I didn't miss, I missed the point here. Jessica wants this covered. Then I will go, sir, but, but am I a bear or a hedgehog? Because she just got a, a baby hedgehog. Because the bears and the hedgehogs are doing their business out there in the garden, outside the windows, and Ransom won't let them close the drapes. More, not, but not less. Go in obedience, and you will find love. You will have no more dreams. Have children instead. And she goes down to the lodge that she had made ready for another purpose, and that's where her husband's going to be. And the last scene of the book, the last paragraph of the book, is here, right here at the end, and she's thinking about her submission as she takes steps down the garden path, and it's down this long path to the lodge. And she realizes her husband's in there. She wonders if he's going to want her or not in that way. 
And then she sees what a mess he left of his clothes as he took them off through the window. And she says, well, obviously it was high time she went in. And that's the end of the book. The book starts with the word matrimony. It ends with her obeying joyfully because of the way she was unmade as a modern and remade understanding the lordship that rested above her and then the lords going who were undeniably lords. Remember, out of reverence for Christ, not out of merits of your husband, out of reverence for Christ, she has no idea if her husband Mark has been improved at all. There's been no contact between them. She doesn't know what's happened to him. He just knows she's there. And she has come to grips with who she is and what her beauty is for and what her God asked her to do. And the joy in submission gave me the idea that there's a law of lords. And the law of lords is this. I came up with this. I tried to condense it out of all these ideas. A lord is raised to make that peace they who are below must kneel to enjoy. Okay? Now, I know that's thick. A, law, a lord is raised to make that peace which those that are below must kneel to enjoy. I think it applies to all lords. God, <clears throat> ransom, your boss, your husband, your parents. They're making a peace that if you want to enjoy it, you have to kneel. Okay? Now, when your husband is being asked to make the peace of an erotic marrying, if you want to enjoy an erotic marrying, you will consider your God, consider your Christ, consider the lords who have directed you toward that, and uh, realize, yeah, your husband may be a paper-crowned lord. Yeah, he's the guy, you know, doing the fried egg bit, putting oil in the Winnebago, and uh, that's all you've got. That's him. And you can smile at him, you can know that. You don't have to pretend he's Sir Galahad. But you know that your God is. And that changes how you walk in humility and obedience before your husband. Now, sex is a pretty good government and a pretty good metaphor. I recommend it. You can quote me on that. Well, my pastor recommends sex. Okay. <laughs> For the married. So the things I want you to ask yourself here in closing are the problems in our marriages stemming from a misunderstanding of the cosmos itself. In other words, is your cosmology so messed up, so modern, so unfilled with glory that you don't know how to live gloriously in it? Is C.S. Lewis more correct than you have been in his shape of the universe? What is your shape of the universe? He actually wrote a book out to tell you what his shape is. And pose yours before him and see if yours is better. Would our marriage is gained by destroying the excuses of the egalitarian spirit of the age? Is the law of lords true? And then read the First Peter 3 passage again. There's a different mind to it, a different sound to it. When I rethink the cosmos, and then it says, And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I go, Amen. There's a uh, quote by J.R.R. Tolkien in his essay on fairy stories, which I have quoted often. It's got a lot of wide effect, and I don't go to Tolkien for any guide in life or anything like that, but it's a good quote. And he says, the gods, 
are, after all, gods. And it is a matter of some moment what stories are told about them. And this was a story. It's a matter of some moment what stories are told. And so when you're representing God, when you're making that narrative, when you're drawing the God that you are going to reverence and submit yourself out of rever that kind of reverence, what does it gain you? What is the story you've told of the living God? Let's thank him. Dear Lord, we're grateful. In your son's name, amen. Now, I prayed there. Um, I'm going to turn this off, actually. Okay. okay.